The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. Turn to Matthew 27, Matthew chapter 27, verses 32 through 44. We're going to continue after that, but these first verses, Matthew 27, 32 through 44, are specifically um, about the crucifixion, when Christ was crucified, and then from 45 on is when he, his, his actual death. So we'll, we'll read that too. But I'm going to, uh, we're not going to read that together. I'm going to, I'm going to read it and I'm going to comment on it as we go. Um, so let's look at verse, let's look at verse 32. The Bible says, so Ma- again, Matthew 27, 32 through 44. And in verse 32, the Bible says, and they, that is the Roman soldiers, with Jesus came out, they came out of Jerusalem. And in Leviticus 24.14, the Bible talks about when someone is put to death, that that person must be put to death without the camp. And so that's, the, that's traditionally how uh, uh, crucifixions were done. They were done without the camp or without the city of Israel. And so that's what these soldiers were doing. The Bible goes on to say they found a man of Cyrene, which is actually Libya, and that's uh, west of Egypt, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And John 19.17 tells us that he didn't carry it entirely by himself, but Christ carried the, the cross, as was customary for all male factors to carry their own cross. They would carry the cross over the, the transverse piece that goes across the, I don't know what you want to call it, beam or down beam. It would hang over the shoulder. And so uh, most likely when Simon was was, uh, you know, commanded by the soldiers, right? He wasn't probably given much of a choice to help. He probably was holding the cross from the bottom, right? Just helping to take the weight off. And the concern uh, for Christ was that he was very faint and weak from all the, from the beatings, the flogging he received, and and so forth, uh, being beat over the head, punched, slapped. And we'll talk more about some of those things. But the concern was that Christ would die before he even made it to the cross. And that would certainly frustrate the orders that the soldiers were giving, right, to crucify him. And that was certainly what the Jewish people wanted, especially the Jewish religious leaders. They wanted Christ Crucified. They wanted Christ to not only die, but they wanted Christ to suffer in the most extreme way. Verse 33, And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, and that's in the Hebrew, in Greek um, it means Calvary, and that's why we, all, we sing that song, right? At Calvary. So that's just, uh, that's just the same, same word in Greek. And Golgotha, or Calvary, was a knoll west of Jerusalem, so a hill. That, and the Bible's going to say that is to say a place of a skull, and it was that was because there were so many people crucified there, buried there, so bones were uh, at times visible uh, from that location from previous executions and burials. Verse thirty-four: They gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and that was done as an anodyne, as a 
painkiller, and it was flat sour wine mixed with something bitter like gall. And in Mark 15, 23, Mark tells us that it was myrrh, and that would have fit the bill because myrrh is very bitter. And they did that to make it distasteful, as distasteful as they could to Christ, intending to aggravate Christ's thirst and his circumstances. And I would write this down, Psalm 69, 21. It is a fulfillment of prophecy. And uh, the Psalms are written at different times, but this particular Psalm is probably over a thousand years, uh, or give or take, of when, uh, when this actually was fulfilled. Um, by the way, I would say, you know, if you have a, if you have a pen or pencil, just, I'm going to be giving out a lot of verses. It would be good to write them down as you can, and then go back and study them. The Bible goes on to say, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink, choosing rather to suffer the full bitter cup of God's wrath for his people. Verse 35, and they crucified him, which, and it was an exceedingly painful and cruel death, but also an extremely shameful and dishonorable death designed for the absolute worst of criminals. The Bible goes on to say, and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet David in Psalm 22:18. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture, upon Jesus' seamless coat, did they cast lots? And John also records this uh, in John 19, 23 through 24, in a little bit more detail. But Jesus um, was crucified naked, right? Extremely, extremely shameful death. Verse 36, and sitting down, they watched him there. That was the four, four soldiers that had just parted his garments, right? And the crowd, of course was nearby, standing nearby, verse, 30, uh, verse 37, and set up over his head his accusation written, this is Jesus, king of the Jews, which it was a customary practice that was done to declare the accusation or charge of the person being condemned, also known as the cause of death or charge of death, and to set it before them, but this to much dissatisfaction of the Jews because of the way it was phrased by Pilate. They went to Pilate and John, John 19 tells us this, and they argued with Pilate to have it changed. They said, Pilate, we want you to change it to Jesus said he was king of the Jews, not that Jesus is king of the Jews, but Pilate, in the providence of God, did not change, refused to change it. It was written, uh, it was written by Pilate in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, according to John 19.20, that all could read it, that all the known word, they, they, the world, they either spoke Latin or Greek or Hebrew. And all many, you remember at that time, many were there for the Passover week from all over the place, all over the world, right? You, and, and hence, we read how Simon of Cyrene was there from Libya. I, uh, oh, verse, sorry, I missed verse 38. Sorry about that. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and the other on the left, and Jesus was most likely placed in the middle because he was the most notorious, and it was also, he was the most prominent, right, to, um, to bring more disgrace, right, more aggravation to his death. 
Verse 39, and they passed, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, blaspheming Christ, speaking in all manner of evil against him, and seemingly exulting in his suffering. This fulfilled several biblical prophecies. In fact, you'll find that uh, even those I mentioned, there's usually multiple uh, references to these prophecies. It's not just one single reference, which the Jews knew full well. But uh, in this particular case, Psalm 89.51, Psalm 22.7, and Isaiah 37.22. In verse 40, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. And of course, this was a misrepresentation of what Jesus said when he taught in John 2. 19 through 22, that he would raise up his body from the grave after three days, which is exactly what Christ did. And it's the same accusation that his false accusers made against him to the council of the Jews, to the Jewish council before they crucified him. And it's why they charged him, based on this false account. And then the second part of that verse, you see where it says, If, if thou be the Son of God, if thou be the Son of God was the exact expression Satan used in Matthew 4.3. In the wilderness to tempt Jesus, demonstrating the Jews' contempt for the Savior, as well as the Jews' very limited view of the Son of God. For an example, the necessity of him coming to die on the cross. The necessity of his atonement. They had no comprehension of that, among many other things. Jesus was to perform a much greater instance of his power than coming down from the cross. He would resurrect his body from the dead. God would provide no other sign to their faithless and perverse generation, according to Matthew 17, 17. Verse 41, Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders, which composed the Sanhedrin, of the nation said, verse 42, he said, others himself he cannot save if he be the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. If only he will come down from the cross. Then we will believe. The Jewish ruler's belief was Christ's works were based upon deception and illusion. Like he was somewhat of a magician but not quite, but that he was under the influence and power of Satan himself. But Christ came not to save himself, but to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19.10. The Jews proved themselves to be liars when Christ resurrected from the dead, and they still rejected him as Messiah. They did their best to cover up his resurrection by paying off the soldiers that stood guard to lie and say his body was stolen. Now that was in Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15. The Jewish rulers remained constant enemies of Christians and the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were constant thorns in the flesh to the gospel. Verse 43, he trusted in God. That is stated with, you might say, mocking, even dripping sarcasm. He pretended to trust in God to be in his favor and high esteem. In other words, he's a false teacher, right? He's cursed by God. He just pretended to know God, right? 
to be in his favor and high esteem. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. Which, interestingly enough, are the express words of Psalm 22.8. For he said, I am the Son of God. This Jesus stated openly throughout his ministry. He stated openly to the Jewish council that, council that condemned him to death in Matthew uh, 64. Sorry, 2664 in the previous chapter. In verse 44, the thieves also which crucified with, which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. So we see here aggravation after aggravation after aggravation. Uh, Christ is just, it's insult, right? On top of injury. But yet another aggravation of Christ's suffering that even the criminals crucified with him reviled him making the same accusations against him as the people. All right, so now let's continue, 45 through 56. And I'm, uh, I'm not in a rush. I actually do have, do have specific points I want to talk about, but I'm not in a rush to get through this because it's such a monumental part of Scripture, right? It's such a fundamental part of the faith is the very crucifixion and death of Christ. So let's look at 45 through 56. Matthew 27, 45 through 56. Now, from the sixth hour, that was noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So there was darkness until 3 p.m. And Spurgeon said it was midnight at midday. Verse 46, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As the Son of God that three hours from noon to three he took upon himself the full wrath of God for the sins of his people. The Lamb of God. And it's interesting that it was during Passover, Passover week, that he was crucified, being the true Lamb of God. What all that emblem, what all that symbolized, right? He was emblematic, ultimately, of all that. Verse 47, some of them that stood there when they heard that said, This man calleth for Elias or for Elijah. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be. Hey, knock it off. Stop it. Get back from him. Let be. Let us see whether Elias will come to save him. So here we see, among other things, just a total lack of compassion. Right, for Christ, knowing that he was literally dying in his thirst, right? And they say, hey, let's, let's see what happens. Don't give him any more to drink. Verse 50, Jesus, we had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was written twain from the top to the bottom, which is interesting, right? That it ripped from the top to the bottom, not from the bottom to the top. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent or tore apart, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept, which were dead, arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection. Notice, after his resurrection, Christ was the first fruits of the dead. He was the first to rise from the dead, and went into the holy city, Jerusalem, and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake and saw those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. 
And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among which was Mary Magdalene, the Mary of mother, the, 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 and Mary, sorry, the mother of James and Joseph, her name was Mary also, and the mother of Zebedee's children, Salome. And Jesus' mother was there also. Okay, well, we're done. We're done reading that. That was a long piece of scripture. The seven sayings of Jesus on the cross are particularly significant since they were not only the only words our blessed Savior expressed on the cruel cross of Calvary, but his last words before his death. We can draw from our own experience to know usually the very last words spoken by a person just before their death are especially meaningful to their loved ones. Christ's last words are unequaled in their richness, their death, and their profoundness. What were the last words the Savior expressed to mankind and to his people? What was his demeanor and state of mind? What was upon the heart of the Savior as he suffered as our sin-bearer? What did Christ desire to reveal to us about his person and through his suffering? What lessons did he want to impart to us from the cross? There are a lot of misunderstanding. There is a lot of misunderstanding and confusion by Christians and those who presume to be about the meaning of the crucifixion. What was the purpose of the crucifixion? This afternoon, I'd like to consider the meaning of the crucifixion by examining the first of the last words of the Savior himself upon the cross. The Savior's first saying was a prayer of forgiveness. If you could turn to Luke 23, 34, the Savior's first saying, the first of the last, was a prayer of forgiveness. It was a prayer, first of all, and it was a prayer of forgiveness. Luke 23:34 and you can just pretty much camp on on this verse. Our dear savior's first saying from the cross is recorded in Luke Luke 23:34 then said Jesus father forgive them for they know not what they do. Notice first that through Jesus Christ that though Jesus Christ was subjected to unimaginable shame, cruelty, wickedness and pitiless violence and while he hung on the cross with stakes driven through his hands and feet, he had the state of mind and, and attitude and awareness for prayer. Think about where your state of mind, where my state of mind might be in that same situation. I honestly can't tell you that it would be on prayer, but Christ was on prayer. And I want to read to you uh, something about just the method of cru- crucifixion. Just the, just what a brutal death that it was, and give you a little description on how people were crucified. And this is uh, found in Biblical Doctrine. It's uh, by John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew, pages 298 through 299. And um, it's a little longer than I'd like. Remember, Pastor said recently, I got my reading glass. Uh, my wife's smiling at me. Uh, it's a little longer than I like. Remember, Pastor said recently, you should never read long things. Well, this is longer than I, I like, but I think it's important. So the method and effects of crucifixion. 
Crucifixion was a form of execution that the Romans had learned from the Persians, who developed a method of crucifying victims by impaling them on a pole, thus raising them high above the earth where they were left to die. By the time, uh, by the time Christ, by the time of Christ, crucifixion had become the favorite method of execution throughout the Roman Empire, and especially in Judea, where it was regularly used to make a public example of rioters and insurrectionists. So think about this: Our Lord of Glory, He's crucified, and this is the method that was used for rioters and insurrectionists. The exact process used in Jesus' crucifixion is a matter of some conjecture. None of the Gospel accounts give a detailed description of the method used on him. After Jesus' crucifixion, Thomas had said to the other disciples, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will not believe. John twenty twenty five. From this remark, we know that Christ was nailed to the cross rather than being lashed by leather thongs. So there was different methods for securing them to the cross. The nails had to be driven through the wrists, not the palms of the hands, because neither the tendons nor the bone structure in the hands could support the body's weight. Nails in the palms would simply tear the flesh between the bones. Nails through the wrists would usually shatter carpal bones and tear carpal ligaments. This is like nursing stuff, Daniela. But the structure of the wrist was nonetheless strong enough to support the weight of the body. As the nail went into the wrist, it would usually cause severe damage to the sensory motor medium nerve, causing intense pain in both arms. Recovered skeletons of first century crucifixions preserve evidence that the feet were nailed through the structure of the foot between the ankle bone and the heel bone. So the nails would be together, right? Would be driven between the ankle and the heel. That coincides with the description in Genesis 3.15 of the woman's offspring sustaining a wound to the heel. That was the first prophecy of the Savior in the Bible, right? Going all the way to Genesis chapter 3. After the victim was nailed in place, several soldiers would slowly elevate the top of the cross and carefully slide the foot that is the foot of the cross, into a deep post hole. The cross would drop with a jarring blow into the bottom of the hole, causing the full weight of the victim to immediately be borne by the nails in the wrists and the feet. That would cause a bone-wrenching pain throughout the body. Anybody ever experience a bone-wrenching pain? As major joints were suddenly twisted out of their natural position, That is probably what Christ prophetically referred to in Psalm 22, verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Death normally came from slow suffocation. The victim's body would hang in such a way that the diaphragm was severely constricted. In order to exhale, he would have to push up with his feet so that the diaphragm would have room to move. Ultimately, fatigue, intense pain, or muscle atrophy would render the victim unable to do this. And he would finally die from the lack of oxygen. One strength or feeling in the legs, once strength or feeling in the legs was gone, the victim would be unable to push up in order to breathe. The death would occur quickly. 
That is why the Romans sometimes broke the legs below the knees as they did to hurry up and get the bodies down before the Sabbath, but they didn't break Christ because he was already dead. And they would do this to hasten the process, John nineteen thirty one. Jesus began his ministry with prayer in Luke 3.21 and ended it at the cross in prayer here in a plea to the Father. Praying with absolute confidence and in the fullness of faith to the Father, believing that his prayer would be heard and answered. Matthew 21.22 In all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. Not believing in prayer, but believing and trusting in the Heavenly Father. Amen? John fifteen seven. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. The Savior shows us how to pray. The Savior says, Father, forgive them, and encourages our hearts to trust in the efficacy, the love, the grace, the mercy, and character of the one who answers prayer, especially in times of persecution, of duress and discouragement, that we would never be in total and complete despair, destitute of all hope, distressed, distressed, but not in despair. John fourteen twenty seven. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Romans eight thirty one through 39 What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And that is a good question and one we ought to remind ourselves with frequency. If God be for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth, not man, right? Verse 34, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us as our Mediator, 1 Timothy 2.15. Verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or a sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We don't just conquer, we're more than conquerors, but we're conquerors through Him. Verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Prayer is not the only thing that we can do. Prayer is the best thing that we can do. Casting all our care upon Him. For what does the Bible say in 1 Peter 5, 7? He careth for you. 
As long as you're here upon God's green earth, you can engage in the ministry of prayer. There are a lot of people in this church, there are a lot of people you know who are in need of prayer. Our own pastor and his wife in need of prayer. Hey, grab a hold of that ministry. Pray hard in faith to the Heavenly Father. Prayer is something that everyone can do. When your health gives way, you can pray. When you're unable to serve God, you can pray. Let prayer be your ministry and service to Him and to His church. It is possible that through prayer you can accomplish more than all of your past active service. That's a, that's a challenge, right? But it shows the importance of prayer and how powerful prayer is. We have a powerful God. Amen? Philippians 4, 6, Be careful or anxious or worried for nothing and nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Luke eleven thirteen. If ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, which we are evil, are we not? We're sinful and evil, wretches, but God saves us. We're saved sinners, but we're sinners, aren't we? So if us being evil give good gifts unto our children, how much more our Heavenly Father? How much more shall your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit, the gifts and graces of the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? But you notice here in the end, we must ask Him. What is asking God for anything? It's prayer. While the Savior is encircled by evil on the cross, both by men and the spiritual powers of darkness at work, he inclines himself to prayer, to communing with God. The best thing that we just talked about. Psalm 22.16, For dogs, for wicked men have compassed me, have surrounded me, the assembly of the wicked, the Jewish Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, the common people, the Roman soldiers, they had surrounded Christ on the cross. Someone even said the thorns on his brow, the circle of thorns that pressed into his skull and that were beaten into his skull prior to, that's, that was emblematic of how Christ was encircled by his enemies. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me to fall upon the Savior and to put him to death. They pierced my hands and my feet, which detailed, of course, the specific way Christ was crucified. And this prophecy was a little over a thousand years before Christ. What did Christ pray for in his hour of immense anguish and agony? Did Christ pray, Father, consume them? If anyone had a right to retributive justice, it was Christ, for sure. Though Christ was publicly mocked, abused, marred, whipped, and beaten, remember that his facial hair was plucked out of his face. The Bible says his face was so marred he was indistinguishable. 
like a criminal, like a malefactor, a guilty malefactor. His judge declared him to be innocent without fault multiple times. We read in John 19, 1-6, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged or whipped him, which was not only unjust, but it was a brutal flogging, where many of you were taught this in Sunday school, the cat of nine tails and how it ripped the skin off the bones. It was a brutal flogging. Pilate hoped to appease and pacify the angry mob that sought Jesus' life without cause. And the soldiers planted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe, which the color of purple or red is the royal color of kings, and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands, they struck him with their hands, either with the open palm, slapping him, or with the fist, punching him. Pilate therefore went forth again, and saith unto him, Then behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The God-man had every right to demand divine retribution for the crimes his crucifiers had perpetrated against him. Instead, on the cross, we see the preeminency and triumph of the Savior's redeeming love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, Charity, our love, suffereth long and is kind. Charity endeth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. It's not boastful. It's not ostentatious. It's not puffed up. It's not full of pride and conceit. Verse 7, Love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. When Christ prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, it was a mediatorial, mediatorial high priestly prayer. And it was explicatory, revealing the purpose, meaning, and necessity of his death. Christ would need to suffer the wrath of God and die on behalf of his people, the elect children of God, that's you and me, that not one would be lost, but every single one of his would be redeemed. Amen. Colossians 1.14, In whom we have redemption, salvation, through his blood, through Christ's death, even the forgiveness of sins. 1 Peter 1, 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Ephesians 1, 3 through 7, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ, according as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to praise to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. 
And then in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, it's as if God was trying to hit us over the head and wake us up. For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by the tradition of your fathers from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Christ's first words from the cross declare what he came to accomplish. Redemption and forgiveness of sins to those who would repent. The love and mercy of God was on full display. Praise God for his mercy. We've got a few more minutes here. When our Savior prayed as he hung from the cross, Father, forgive them, he was praying that his propitiatory, ato- propitiatory atonement to God for the sins of his people be brought to fruition through his crucifixion according to the Father's perfect will. Christ being in complete subjection to the Father's will. John 6.38, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Matthew 26.39, And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. Christ, in his humanity as a son of man, voluntarily surrendered his will to the Father in all things. That his human will would be in perfect harmony with the divine will. Christ cried from the cross for the pardon for his people. Father, forgive them. Reveals the immutable sovereign God's fixed determination to carry out his plan to provide a Savior whose sacrifice would purchase the forgiveness that the blood of bulls and goats could never provide. Hebrews 10, 3-4, But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again, made of sins every year, and again, and again, and again. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Christ became our sin offering, being offered once for all. Not again and again. It just took one offering of the Lord Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior. Hebrews 10, 10 through 18, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. In other words, their sin was an ineffectual sacrifice. Verse 12, but this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. His work, Christ's work, being done, his sacrifice being effectual to take away all sin, is at ease on the, at the right hand of the Father. Verse 13, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. His offering is a perfect offering. 
Verse 15, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Once we are forgiven, we are forgiven. Forgiven means forgiven. Our sins are no longer held over our heads. We're not charged with our sins. We are completely sinless and righteous before the Father through the death and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, where remission or forgiveness of these is, there is no more offering for sin. There's no need for any offering. There's no need for any sin offering, any good work offering that we can do. I saw on the way home from church this morning, on the back on the window of this vehicle, it said, do good and be kind, which is, it's a good phrase to live by, right? As Christians, we should do good and be kind. But nothing, not even being good, not even being kind, can add to the perfect sacrifice of our Savior on the cross. Amen? At the cross, our sinless Savior became sin for us in order to satisfy the justice and holiness of a thrice, three times, holy God. Isaiah 6.3, And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For He hath made Him, as the Lord Jesus Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, who was sinless, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That His righteousness would be imputed to us by grace through faith. And I'm going I'm to wrap it up here. Christ is the satisfaction and surety for His people. Unto salvation by the abundant grace and mercy of God, whereby we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 tells us, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which assures us of our salvation. It assures us of our preservation. He who has started, he who has began a good work in us, will finish it. And we are certain, we have a sure hope that we will see Him in glory. I think I'll call it quits. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we just thank you for the prayer. We thank you for your spirit that works in our heart, generating our heart, causing us to repent of our sins and to trust you as Savior, giving us saving faith. We thank you for your spirit that sustains us, that we persevere throughout our Christian life. We thank you for strengthening us through your word, for making us stronger in you. Lord, help us 
to follow in your footsteps, to walk in your example. That as we pray, that in everything that we do, we commune with you, we put our full trust and confidence in you, that we trust in you, that we're not anxious, that we're not worried, but we just safely trust in you. We thank you that we were, we would have been among the crucifiers, we would have been among the scoffers. We thank you that you saved us, Lord, from the rightful punishment due us. So we just want to take a moment to praise you for your grace, to praise you for your mercy. And Lord, help us to be people, your people, your children. Help us to glorify you. In In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.